Without a pause after the previous movement, the finale begins with an enormous explosion that ricochets off the first beat into a massive dissonant chord in high woodwinds. Mahler once called this chord the cry from a deeply wounded heart. Following upon the hushed sounds of the funeral march gradually fading away at the close of the third movement, this powerful outburst shocks us into the dramatic action that follows. It may be likened to the dissonant chord that opens the corresponding movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which may well have been a source. On the very next beat, the timpani pounds out a powerful roll to complete the initial gesture. With this opening cataclysm, Mahler cries out in anguish at the tragic fate of humankind, so ironically signified by the funeral march movement, its disquieting stillness at the end being shattered by this outburst. The finale's tempo marking, Sturmisch bewegt, an agitated storm, makes explicit the nature of the movement's opening section, which is originally entitled Dal Inferno. For what we now witness is nothing less than a violent torrential storm scene, not as a musical depiction of a dramatic event, but an expression of internalized rage and frustration at the injustice, if not absurdity, of death that must of necessity abruptly dash our dreams and hopes before they can be fulfilled. After the opening dissonant explosion, a deluge of wild string figuration surges upward into a powerful tremolo out of which the brass state the first four notes of what will later become the main theme. In outline, this, these first four notes comprise an ascending fourth, thus a reference to the symphony's motto. At this early stage in a movement that will last nearly as long as the rest of the symphony, Mahler gives us this hint of the heroic theme that will resolve the stormy internal conflict that now rages in torrents of sound and fury. Rapidly descending triplet figures menacingly thrust out in the middle of the raging storm, sounding like machine gun fire scattered across the battlefield, their spasmodic assault challenging the hero, represented by a fragment of the heroic theme just heard in the brass. The cry of distress continues its anguished wail intruding throughout the storm scene. Let's listen to the opening of this movement. Marshalling enough strength to pull its fragments together, 
the heroic theme presents itself majestically and in full bloom over waves of the eighth-note figuration from the opening storm music. The second half of the heroic theme is almost a mirror image of its first half. As is Mahler's want, he begins to develop this theme immediately. Each of its elements undergoes transformation as the music continues to surge forward with enormous power and intensity. A variant of the three-note cello motive from the development section of the first movement soon appears, treated here as a thematic fragment. Also significant is the incorporation of the chromatic descending triplet figure from the opening storm music. Mahler adds another figure from the first movement. This is a variation of the march tread that first appeared in the harp during the opening section of the first movement's development. The storm music continues to rage on, straining to reach upward on ever-widening intervallic leaps in the violins. The tempo holds back momentarily as another climax approaches, only to rush forward again with greater force as the storm scene continues unabated for nearly 60 measures. It seems to lose control, maniacally repeating outcries of despair over spasmodic fits and starts of the storm's rapid figuration, punctuated by a drumbeat after a very short pause, and finally ending with a single soft string pizzicato and drumbeat. The descending triplets that functioned as the storm battle's antagonist, curiously absent from the exposition section thus far, now return, if only as faint lightning flashes, in trumpet and trombone, then stated more broadly in clarinet, bassoon, and horns, It would seem that the storm has at last abated and calm will now prevail, at least for the present. After the tension of the storm scene fades, violins enter softly and tenderly on a rising chromatic sequence that becomes increasingly ardent as it moves higher, as if yearning for love that could provide the hero with relief from the raging conflict that engulfs him. But the yearning sentiment of this passage finds no resolution. The music merely falls back upon itself when it reaches its high point, after losing its initial impulse, then furtively softening to a whisper to lead us into the enchanting second theme. 
gently stirred by syncopated minor thirds in the horns and lightly sprinkled with delicate pizzicato punctuation in low strings, the second theme pours forth its romantic passion. It is one of Mahler's most effusive romantic melodies. Notice that it contains several elements of the Blumina theme, particularly in the rhythm and shape of the very first phrase and the eloquent phrase endings on appoggiaturas. But unlike the principal theme from that discarded movement, with its simplistic sentimentality and rigidly constructed cellular phrasing, the second theme here has much more thematic variety, less repetition, and a more creative manner of cross-referencing, such as in its use of rising scales that relate to the main theme of the first movement. Notice the reference to the cello motive of the first movement. Here, the cello motive occurs briefly on falling two-note figures played by an oboe and clarinet. The second theme's latter part, played on the violins in octaves, expands upon the opening part emphasizing the sentimentality of longing and the falling major second that ends the first part of the Brumina theme. Mahler stresses the theme's effusive quality by accelerating and slowing down by turns. As the second theme builds to a climax, it becomes more intense, pouring out its deep longing with ever greater fervency. Mahler emphasizes the rapturous nature of the passage by marking it rubato, meaning to be played freely, alternating between accelerating and slowing down. The strings rhapsodize on an extension of the theme, almost like an operatic aria. This rubato passage culminates in a leap of a ninth that thrusts the music forward and is then suspended on a high note for a brief but thrilling moment. The melody descends from there in a vigorous flurry, that leads to an arching phrase which falls on a huge swell over one of Mahler's lengthy appoggiaturas in a full cadence to D-flat major, the main key of the second subject. It is one of the most romantically expressive passages in all of Mahler's music.
The entire second subject is not only far removed from the storm music that preceded it, but takes no part in the raging conflict that contains the dramatic argument of the movement, if not of the entire symphony. Nor does the second theme appear during the development section that follows, with the exception of a brief moment of recollection after material from the first movement's introduction returns. It would seem that Mahler only intended this lovely music to function as a diversion from the stormy conflict about to be renewed. Following the close of the second subject, two horns softly play a dreamy melody that contains a subtle reference to the gazellen song of the first movement. The cadence with which this melody ends anticipates the final cadence of the entire symphony. On the gentle murmuring of the cello's dirge-like march tread from the first movement, the motto-like sequence of falling fourths returns, stated slowly and softly by two clarinets. Horns quietly play the opening notes of the heroic theme, answered by a short volley from its antagonist, the descending chromatic triplet figure, played rapidly on muted horns. The principles of the conflict, locked in combat during the opening storm scene, are about to re-engage. Soon the suspense increases as the march tread becomes more agitated. Horns play the first few notes of the heroic theme softly in anticipation of what is to come. But when the trumpet and trombone repeat these notes more forcefully after an unexpected swell in strings, we are suddenly thrust back into the raging storm of battle with which the development section begins. Trumpets hail the return to battle with a demonstrative statement of the heroic theme's opening notes, after which the full orchestra bursts out with a deluge of the storm music. The conflict is renewed with even greater vigor and intensity than before. A life-and-death struggle between opposing forces ensues as motivic material cross swords in hand-to-hand combat. As the intensity reaches its height, the raging storm music suddenly vanishes, and gives way to a flood of bright C major sunlight. This unanticipated shift in tonality and mood accompanies the equally unexpected reprise of the second part of the main theme, played by the woodwinds, over whispering string trills. 
trumpets softly play the heroic theme in its first complete statement with a new uplifting cadential phrase regaled with military horn signals from the symphony's introduction and energized with string figuration from finale's opening section. A thematic inversion of the heroic theme follows in subdued brass, after which the cello motive makes an appearance in oboes and clarinets. Just as it would seem that the hero has weathered the storm, it suddenly re-emerges in full force. A huge crescendo whips up the torrential storm music to its former intensity. Repeated cries of distress greet the opposing forces as they engage in battle to the accompaniment of a furious string figuration from the opening movement. A powerful wind fanfare heralds the first four notes of the heroic theme, resounding from the full brass like a clarion call to victory. Despite being deluged by a flood of rapid figuration and a volley of horn calls, the heroic theme will not be denied. Undaunted, the theme scales the battlements with its succeeding phrase. A momentary pause heightens the tension, as if the opponents take one long breath before plunging into battle with renewed energy. Something remarkable happens to the tonality with that last outburst. Mahler admitted that at this crucial point in the work, he had difficulty fashioning the right effect. After trying out many possibilities, he realized that he had to modulate from one key to the key just above it, from C to D major, the main key of the piece. That could have been done very easily, he suggested, by using the intervening semitone modulating from C to C-sharp, and then to D. But everyone would have then known what the next step was going to be. He wanted the D major chord to sound as if it came from heaven, or from another world. If there is now one truly great thing in the symphony, Mahler professed, I know it is this passage. Listen to this passage again. passage seems like a deus ex machina, a God-given means through which the hero will attain ultimate victory. Now the heroic peroration that had been interrupted earlier by the reprise of the storm music can begin in earnest. The flood of D major ushers in a majestic procession 
on an inversion of the heroic theme, played nobly over a galloping rhythm in bass strings. One can just imagine the hero, in all his regalia, riding triumphantly into battle. As if emerging naturally from the heroic theme, the original motto with which the symphony began, sometimes called the nature motive, now returns played by seven horns. It appears here in a different guise, as an extension of the heroic theme. The purpose of the theme's embryonic statement during the introduction to the first movement now becomes crystal clear. The hero is but an extension of nature, its most glorious aspect. Now the entire orchestra celebrates the union of these thematic motivic elements of the hero and nature in an ingenious variety of combinations. Eventually the music calms down and we hear a soft stirring passage on a sustained D major chord over accented rumblings in the string basses. Just so the conversion of the nature motive to a part of the heroic theme isn't missed, Mahler suspends further development and brings the symphony's introduction back in brief, yet complete with horn calls, trumpet tattoos on clarinets and flutes, and cuckoo calls, all ending with a brief reference to the second theme. It's like a magical, nostalgic vision, as unexpected as was the sudden flood of D major that occurred only moments earlier. But the dream vanishes as the dirge-like march tread from the first movement returns subtly in low strings. The nature motive on violins, cuckoo calls on a clarinet, and a hint of the first movement's main theme, played briskly on a bassoon, followed by bird flutterings on the flute, all present a mosaic of short phrases in dialogue that further recalls the distant past of the first movement. They not only tie together the opening and closing movements of the symphony, but make more apparent their musical interrelationships and provide a strikingly creative transition to the recapitulation that follows.
Deviating from traditional structural practice, Mahler begins the recapitulation at the end of this reference back to the first movement, not with the heroic theme, the main theme of the exposition, as would have satisfied the rules of sonata form, but with the lyrical second theme that had no significant role in the the development. Of course, like most of Mahler's melodies, it is not presented precisely as it first appeared, but is expanded in rising sequences. At the height of this passage, a sudden burst of speed and a crescendo impel the music forward on a syncopated variant of the descending chromatic figure previously used as an extension of the second theme. This sudden eruption of energy quickly dissipates as the music softens until only a diminished chord in F minor remains. All is veiled in mystery, suspended on that diminished seventh chord. At this point, Mahler must find a way to bring back the heroic first theme in preparation for the victory that has been anticipated in the symphony's very first measures. Out of the stillness, an ascending three-note figure suddenly thrusts out loudly and abruptly in violas. It is repeated in a succession of rhythmic variants, each one softer and slower and differently positioned in the ball. Remarkably, this little jabbing figure provides the means by which Mahler creates one of his most fascinating transitions. As soon becomes clear, this little figure is a motivic cell that gradually becomes recognizable as the opening notes of the heroic theme into which it grows. Yet when the theme itself emerges, Mahler does not simply dispense with the little cellular figure. He uses it again as a countervailing motive that works its way into the eighth note figuration that accompanies the second part of the main theme. An expanded variant of this little cellular figure defiantly asserts itself yet again until Mahler finally disposes of it. Recapitulation, now in process, concentrates on further development of various elements of the first subject. The cello motive from the first movement returns, as it did toward the end of the first movement, as the violins stretch it higher and higher. In the finale, it plays the role of extending the main theme until trumpets ring out a volley of tattoos. Also from the first movement, 
these tattoos propel the music forward on an inverse variant of the dirge-like tread from the symphony's introduction. The music builds gradually to a huge explosion with which the coda begins. This build-up is similar to the one appearing in the first movement. As during that extensive passage that builds to a huge outburst in the first movement, Mahler directs that the tempo should be held back as the music grows stronger and more rhythmically active, thus creating enormous tension as it moves toward a huge climax. Heroic horn calls played with their bells high enter triumphantly just before this climax, leading the hero to victory. The climactic orchestral explosion is a quotation of the huge fanfare climax of the first movement, slightly reorchestrated. Once again, Mahler engages a sudden harmonic shift to D major, the symphony's principal key, that heightens the climax's overwhelming power. This time, the climax does not recede quickly as it had in the first movement. With the advent of the coda, final victory has been achieved. The heroic theme, first heard in its entirety as a distant vision during the beginning of this movement, now resounds gloriously in the brass. Even the timpani joins in with a brisk version of the repeating fourths that served in the preceding movement, not for a celebration, but for a funeral procession. Now Mahler ties together the heroic theme and the nature motive on which it is based making evident their motivic and conceptual relationship. His intentions become obvious, to turn the forces of nature into a hero who will conquer the destructive antagonist that seeks to defeat the heroic nature of the spirit. Hero and nature are united in victory. They are set in motion by the same march rhythm that accompanied the inverted variant of the heroic theme earlier. At the height of a magnificent peroration, the triumphal procession marches to glory. Revitalized, the nature theme becomes more demonstrative, swelling with pride and noble bearing. At the height of the hero's victory comes a crucial point, tellingly marked with the word triumphal in the score. By such a designation, Mahler clearly intended this passage to be the cornerstone of the entire movement, if not of the whole symphony. Unfortunately, few conductors give significant effect to the markings here. For this excerpt, I've chosen a recording that I believe does justice to this passage.
as all of the horns rise here, as they majestically intone a call to life on a variant of the heroic theme that proceeds to a monumental cadence, combining the nature and hero themes in perfect counterpoise. This triumphant music continues without change in tempo for no less than 68 bars. A dramatic appoggiatura in D major for brass prepares the way for the final cadence, foreshadowed during the development. Now Mahler lets the tempo loose. Trumpet tattoos riding over waves of rapid string figuration convert the opening storm scene into an heroic apotheosis. These tattoos soon take on the guise of whooping triplet figures from the first movement, yet another example of how Mahler foreshadows final resolution in earlier movements. These triplets hurtle upward with increasing urgency into isolated orchestral strokes over an enormous timpani and triangle roulade, all finally cut off by a two-note orchestral snap with which the symphony ends. Thank you. 